Thank you so much and good morning. This morning we're going to be looking into a passage of Scripture that will help us launch a new series. Throughout the course of these uh, coming months we'll be looking at Second Chronicles, but today what I want to do is to look very carefully at David's transition plan as he was about to pass the baton of leadership from his hands into the hands of Solomon. And he's going to do this publicly, he's going to do this wisely, and he'll do it in a way that's going to have great impact upon the people. Now, as you're turning your attention to First Chronicles in chapter 28, this whole subject deals with the matter of transition. So now, if you've ever gone from adolescence to adulthood, if you've transitioned from job to job, if you've transitioned from good health to poor health, or poor health to good health, if you've transitioned from singleness to marriage, or marriage to singleness, if you've been confronted with medical information that you were not anticipating last year, and now you're processing this new information, you've entered into the whole realm of transition And the question is, how do you go about managing transition in a way that's going to bring honor and bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ? Those are the sorts of questions we're going to be asking ourselves this morning. We're going to be looking at all 21 verses in this chapter. But in particular, I want to begin reading in verse 1, take it down through verse 10. And this is going to be our springboard where in coming weeks and months, We'll be looking into the great works of God chronicled in Second Chronicles, but today, a bit of a taste of what's coming our way as we start in verse 1. Now David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem. The officers of the tribes, the commanders of the divisions, and the service of the king the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and the brave warriors. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader. And from the house of Judah he chose my family. And from my father's sons he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. 
I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unswerving in carrying out my commands and laws, as is now being done at this time. So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel, and of the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land, and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. So if you're facing change, going through transition, you see that there's going to be a difference tomorrow compared to the way you're living today. These are verses for you and for me. So we look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for being the God of worship. You bring us, even on days that are less than ideal, into your presence in order to corporately worship you, and we praise you for that fact. We thank you for it. Get our marching orders here, and the wisdom that flows from your word. Know the hearts here. Know the struggles we face. Know the temptations we endure. For some, it's going to be very relational. For some, it's the loneliness of aloneness. For others, it's going to be job-related and some health. But what we bear in common, Father, is that there is a risen Savior who attests to the fact that he has conquered death. That as sinners, when we put our faith and trust in Christ alone, our salvation is secured. So now, Father, we are opening these hearts of ours. We're opening these minds of ours. And we're opening our eyes. So again, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was not necessarily the president that a lot of people wanted. It was a bitter campaign, a difficult campaign, and now was the time of transition from the presidency of John Quincy Adams to that of Andrew Jackson. For the first time, the United States would have a president who was neither from the state of Massachusetts nor that of Virginia. This is a man who would not be Harvard-trained, nor would he be Yale-educated. This is a man from the general populace of the West, and the people were worried about the change that he was bringing to the nation. They thought it might, in fact, be, in essence, mob rule 
And the inauguration process led a lot of people to think that very thing. Because as Jackson made his way to Washington, D.C., so did a lot of people from the outskirts, traveling 500 miles and beyond to be able to get there. Old Hickory was his nickname, Old Hickory. General in the forces, beloved by his soldiers, but not necessarily idealized by the people out east. When the inauguration time came, he was wearied because Rachel, his wife, had just passed away in the month of December. He wanted to isolate himself from people, but this is a time to be able to identify yourself with people. So they arrived in their buckskin clothes. They walked into the White House corridors in their muddy boots. And as they did so, a brawl began to break out. The liquor was flowing, the tempers were rising, the arguments were there to be had. People were being booted out, and there was a security force that encircled Andrew Jackson to protect him from those that were trying to make their way in to be able to shake his hand or something else. Interestingly, the Chief Justice at that time, John Marshall, made a statement that he would rather swear in the devil than Andrew Jackson as President of the United States. One of his opening decisions was to be able, with public funding, to be able to establish 20 spittoons so that people could spit there rather than on the carpet of the White House. With this in mind then, as the mobs were breaking out and the arguments were developing and people were being escorted out and windows were being broken to the White House, a columnist wrote, this is absolutely no way to provide an example of transition. Sometimes transition comes abruptly. Other times, transition comes gradually. But transition has to do with change. And if you've experienced change in your family, change in your work experience, change in your income, change in your health, change simply because you live then what we want to do this morning is to look at the way in which David, guided by the Holy Spirit, became a change agent so that the people could embrace biblical transition in a way that could truly honor God. So if you're being confronted by some new realities, I want to draw out for us this morning four significant entailments found in these verses as to how we go about manage transition and all for the glory of God. And the first is found in verse 1 down through verse 8. And we're going to phrase it like this, number one, that managing transition wisely, which is what we want to do, it entails, first of all, reviewing the initiatives that God has taken. In other words, asking yourself the question, As you look back over the course of the days of your life, what is it that can truly and exclusively be pinned to what God did 
not what you did. Where you're not going to confuse yourself with God's will, but you are absolutely certain in the course of the days you were guided by the will of God. Now David is going to rehearse some history. And as he does so in verse 2, he rises to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. He's calling together a family gathering. He's going to be personally involved in explaining the challenges of change that have come their way. David is about to hand the reins over to Solomon. David is approaching 70 years of age. And as the transition process is unfolding, he gets personal, he looks into their hearts, and he identifies with them when he says, My brothers, my people. You ever have that kind of family conversation? Look on. I had it in my heart, he says in that verse, verse 2. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest. As a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. I made plans to build it. Did you notice the eyes here? I had it in my heart. I made plans. When you look back over the course of your days, begin to ask yourself, what sort of plans did you have in your heart? What sort of dreams did you enter into your relationship with God with? What is it that you wanted to build? Not for your sake, but for the glory of God. Maybe you're in the midst of it right now and you're dreaming, and that's great. Dream big. Dream big. But what David is now doing at this stage of his life is he looks at this young man who now has entered into a co-regency with David. He starts off negatively. Yeah, I had it in my heart. I made plans. Lots of plans. Plans to build the temple, you see. But look at verse 3 and mark it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you're a warrior and have shed blood. But God, I was appointed commander-in-chief. These were your battles you wanted me to fight against the Philistines. I remember that significant experience against Goliath. I recount all those challenging moments on the battlefield. And now you're telling me you don't want me to build a temple despite all I've done for you? Have you ever been prone to want to say, but God, why won't you let me do this? Look at all that I've done over the course of the prior weeks, months, years. And God said, no. Have you ever experienced that? 
Solomon now is going to have to process the negative aspect of the guidance of God, his leadership of the people. What do you look for when God says no? Chuck Colson, in one of his articles back in 1989 of Christianity Today, wrote, Shortly before I visited San Quentin Prison, officials discovered hidden weapons in some cells. As a result, the prison was locked down, the inmates confined to their cells 24 hours a day. The few who showed up to hear me speak were mostly believers. Prison fellowship volunteers, honor camp inmates. Now, don't get me wrong, I was glad to speak to them, but I was disheartened. This had been my opportunity to share the gospel to hardened offenders. Now I felt as though I was just preaching to the choir. I struggled with my lack of enthusiasm until I noticed until I noticed that there was a video camera in the far end of the room. Well, perhaps this is being recorded for the chapel library, I said to myself. Maybe I'd better give it my all. And as I started to speak, I suddenly felt the Holy Spirit's conviction. And I remembered I was called by God to share his word no matter if one inmate or a thousand were listening. Do you remember what came next? Afterwards, I noted my disappointment to the chaplain, and he looked surprised. Chuck, didn't you know, he said. Because of the lockdown, the administration agreed to videotape your message. They'll be showing it to all the inmates tomorrow on closed-circuit television. A captive audience, I might add. I was overwhelmed. Because of the lockdown, 2,200 prisoners would hear the gospel instead of the 300 who had signed up. God had arranged a way for far more inmates to hear his word. Yet, if I had not been faithful, the opportunity would have been missed. Question. Are you willing to be faithful even if God appears to be saying no. And what hidden lessons are lurking in that no that need to be transported into the next generation? And among your colleague friends at work or in the home. But what I love here is that what David does as a father, and he's very wise about this, he balances the negative with the positive. And what David does as a brilliant leader is that he balances the negative with the positive. Because after saying, in essence, God said no in verses 2 and 3, now he begins to chronicle all the God said yeses 
in the verses to come. You need a balanced view of God, you know. And here it comes. In verse 4, David says, Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, and notice his sovereign choosings, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. Mark that word, forever. And that's why Jesus Christ, even on that cross, had to be raised from the dead. This is a forever type king, you know, we're talking about. And a forever kind of kingdom. He chose Judah as a leader. And now the people are listening as they begin to ponder those words that that Moses wrote of in Genesis 49. that, That out of Judah would come the scepter, the royalty the king of the people. From the house of Judah he chose my family, and from my father's sons he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And they might remember the story of how Samuel said to each of Jesse's sons, no, God said no. God said no. God said no. Don't you have any others? Oh, there's one out in the field tending to the sheep. Bring him in. They brought him in. God said yes. Parents, are you blending the no and the yes? Or is it one to the exclusion of the other? Students, are you blending the no's and the yes's together and looking for the powerful lessons in the no and asking yourself, and how is God leading since he has just said yes. And will this yes lead to a a, a no down the road? And will this no lead to a yes down the road? And am I willing to be obedient regardless of the answer to this kind of question I'm posing? As a Chuck Colson had to ponder the significance of a 24-7 lockdown. and the impact that that would eventually produce. Any disappointments right now? Have you considered how the no might be a directive towards a yes? Are you balancing the negative and the positive? David does. Of my sons, all my sons, he's got a lot of sons, verse 5, The Lord has given me many, he adds. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel, which was critically important to announce because one of his sons would then try to position himself as a rival to Solomon and the true heir to the throne. David's gone public with the will of God. Do you? So now, David here in verse 7 says, I will establish his kingdom forever if he's unswerving and carrying out my commands and laws as it's being done at this time. So he quotes his Lord. And so now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful. Solomon, everybody, 
Be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. Which is why we're still dealing with the Middle Eastern issue today. As the land now has been placed back into the custody of the Israelites as of 1948. Don't underestimate that word forever and the premillennial position that it argues for. So number one, managing transition wisely entails reviewing the initiatives that God has taken. And because of that, what you do is you review the negatives and you review the positives. You blend them together and say, now God, what are you teaching me in the midst of the transition? And you bring truth to transition. And you don't allow transition to reshape truth no matter what changes you're going through in life. Now once you've done that, you and I are ready for the second entailment found in verse 9 and verse 10. And we're going to put it like this. That number two, managing transition wisely entails preparing the heart that God will search. And he will search. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Now he gets personal, which we need to do. And you, my son Solomon, Acknowledge the God of your Father. You see the word acknowledge? Within it is the word knowledge. The Hebrew word carries with the idea of intimate relationship with. So now he is saying, Solomon, I want your leadership to be such that it reveals intimate knowledge and understanding of your God. Do people have a sense of that in your own your own relationship to God? Do they have a sense you like this? And in the midst of the change, you're still like this? Because you understand what is changeable and what is changeless. And you understand that it's dangerous to try to make the changeable changeless. Ever try to do that? It's also dangerous to try to make the change less changeable. Ever try to do that? Wisdom requires us to be able to distinguish what is changeable and what is changeless. Because if we put our identity and place our identity in that which is changeable, we lose our identity the moment change arrives. But if I place and position my identity in Jesus Christ, I have a secure identity based upon who He is and my relationship to Him. Acknowledge the God of your Father and serve Him with wholehearted devotion. You're going to find in the writings of the Chronicles that the heart is a very important word. It will appear again and again and again. Now, as David says this to Solomon, what might be lurking in David's mind is how a prior king by the name of Saul tried to serve God half-heartedly rather than wholeheartedly. 
Ever try to serve God half-heartedly? He gets half a heart, and you get the other half. The danger is when we try to give God half a heart, eventually the world gets our entire heart, as was the case of Saul. Fascinating that David is described as a man after God's own heart, you see. So now, David has this true sense of what this means in biblical leadership, in personal management, in righteous living. So you serve him, Solomon, he says publicly in front of everybody, wholehearted devotion, with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart, Look at this, underline this, mark this, digest this. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. And so now we need a heart check, don't we? Because in times of transition, in times of change, it's incredibly important to evaluate the inner nature of the heart and determine what lurks there and what might that heart be leading me to. Solomon grasped this at an earlier stage of his leadership, didn't he? In fact, he would want to draw this out to his children when he would say in chapter 4 of the book of Proverbs 23, Above all else, God your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Solomon, easier said than done. Easier said than done. You know, in Salzburg, Austria, there's an engineer who says that a heartbeat detector has been invented to help find people buried in avalanches under as much as 65 feet of snow. It says it's useful in managing major rescue works. God does major rescue works in our lives but he starts with the heart. Does he have all of it or just a portion of it? Solomon's got to grasp these things. He's got to manage the internals because nobody else goes there except God him. And the externals will always be governed by the internals and the heart shapes the action and the question is, Will the actions of tomorrow be consistent with the righteous heart of today? Where am I at with God? Which leads us now to this third, this third entailment. As we seek to produce and develop biblically-based management of change, of transition, 
that thirdly, managing transition wisely entails following the plan that God has established. Not what we have established. What God has established. But talking about the Word of God. Look at verse 11. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans. Didn't hold back. It's not a reservoir, it's a channel. The plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that, and I've marked this, the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord. You placed it in my mind and I don't have the opportunity to use it? Some other time, some other place, some other person. Not you, David. Solomon. Be a channel. Don't be a reservoir. Students need to grasp this in the way you relate to the fellow students. Parents need to grasp this. Investing God's Word as it flows through the experiences that you have managed so that they can grasp the significance of the lessons of life. You, saw, you spotted the Spirit of the Lord there, didn't you, in that verse, verse 12? Draw a line down to verse 19. All this, David said, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me. And he gave me understanding and all the details of the plan. And now what you've done is that you've pulled together the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. And they are never to be separated from one another. Never argue I'm trying to simply follow the Spirit of the Lord without investing time in the Word of the Lord. And don't become so overly academic you know the Word of the Lord, but you are not necessarily being guided by the Spirit of the Lord. The objective, the subjective emerge here within the heart, and now it's being transported into the mindset of Solomon. And David is saying here, this is significant. Grasp this. We're dealing with the plan of God as revealed, which likewise you and I process. What's God's plan for this world? What does God outline regarding marriage? What God has outlined with regard to discipleship? What is God's plan for the church? And here the written word of God is now being placed right there. Uh, the plan is now being delivered to Solomon. You know, the Xerox Corporation says it's found a way to create temporary images on paper that would self-erase in 24 hours or less. Special pages theoretically could be used again and again as much as 50 times. The plan was started around 2000 when they discovered 40% of printed material is used for the day and then thrown away. So with that in mind, Xerox decided there was clear demand for paper that could be reused, not merely recycled on a daily basis. Now, what David is saying here is that this is to be so firmly imprinted upon your mind 
because it's imprinted here in the Word. This is something of significance. All this, David said, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord. This is non-erasable. This is endurable. Ezra was most likely the author of First and Second Chronicles. Ezra. Who you'd read about, for example, in Nehemiah chapter 8, where he was expounding God's word and a powerful spiritual awakening occurred among the people as they were involved in the rebuilding of the temple. And here, if Ezra is truly, and I believe so, the author of First and Second Chronicles, he is recounting the building of this temple. And so we're pulling together this stream of thought and connecting the dots here. And here now is the written word, and you're combining the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of the Lord, 12 and 19, converge in the mindset of Solomon, which naturally then leads us into this final entailment, beginning in verse 20. He takes a deep breath, I'm sure. He gets personal with Solomon in public. David also said to Solomon, his son, be strong, courageous. Sounds like a man. Sounds like a dad. But where did we hear this before? Didn't Moses utter such words to Joshua in the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua? These are the great words that God gives people in the midst of the change of life. But then adds, and do the work. Do the work. Whether it be small or large, visible or hidden, whatever it is that God's called you to do at this moment in your life experience, do the work. Because today's work is preparation for tomorrow's work. It's a comma, not a period in the sentence of your life. Hal Martin puts it this way. Gotten done speaking after a morning service and challenging some people with regard to saving the Lord. And that night, a, a widowed mother in the church called and asked to speak to one of the associate pastors. She was desperate for a ride for her young son to the hospital the next day. There had been a long scheduled appointment with a specialist. The hospital was 50 miles away. As a widow, she was also ill that night, had children at home. She needed somebody from the church to get him there. The medical personnel would be waiting upon his arrival. First, the man was hesitant. Hesitant after he had already said in the morning how hungry and desirous he was to serve the Lord. But he took off half a day of work, went to the woman's house that next morning, and well, as we said, she was unable to go because of her other children. So he carried the little boy who was unable to walk on his own out to the van, set him down beside him in the seat. And when they had driven a while, the boy looked up at this man who had responded at the end of the service with a heart of wanting to serve the Lord. And the young boy said, You're God, aren't you? 
No, said the man. Why would you say that? Little boy went on. Last night I heard my mom crying and praying to God to send someone to take me to the hospital. I thought you must be God. The boy was quiet for a minute. Then he said, If you're not God, you work for him, don't you? You work for him, don't you? There's your fourth entailment. Managing transition wisely entails doing the work God has prescribed. Facing change. Processing transition. Be strong and courageous. And do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. Didn't some disciples hear something similar as they were about to experience transition? As Jesus was about to depart, and I am with you always, even to the ends of the ages. This is no way to create a smooth transition. A columnist writes, But when you and I can distinguish between the changeless and the changeable, and embrace what God has done for our lives for God's glory, and manage work small or large for God's glory, Watch God at work. Watch what He does. He's going to use you in the midst of the change that you're facing. Let's stand together. Praising you and thanking you, Father, we want to be, we desire to be, Biblically practical. Taking the lessons of time and even from the days of Solomon and relating them to 2013. We realize that change is a constant. Which seems ironic. But Lord, when we put our faith and trust in the changeless one, you guide us through the changes of life. So if somebody today is feeling overwhelmed with decisions of the past, challenges with regard to what once was and no longer is, wishing that what is would be different tomorrow, Lord, speak to that heart. Minister to that need and allow the Alpha and the Omega to come alongside and bring truth to transition, comfort to the soul, and strength for tomorrow. And we'll give you all the praise.
In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.